All right, morning. That was a test. I just said morning. You all said good morning. But I guess that means you're having a good morning, so that's good. <laughs> anyway, actually, I didn't do that on purpose, but I just realized that after I said it. But anyway, Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to get into chapter 9, but uh, Hebrews chapter 8 first... We mostly covered what I wanted to last week in this, but there's just a little bit I want to rehash here. And the purpose is I'm trying to show you, uh, Lord willing, that how Hebrews, the presentation of Hebrews fits into the big picture, right? The big scheme, if you want to say. Um, and so, because um, there's emphasis that Hebrews puts on certain things that, you, if you didn't have the book of Hebrews, you would certainly miss in much of the New Testament. So um, with, the, of course, the, the priestly work of Christ, and then we, last week we're in Hebrews chapter 8, we're talking about uh, the new covenant, which is an emphasis here, uh, and that Christ's priesthood is, is a priesthood that's after the new covenant. He's the mediator of the new covenant. We see that a couple times here. Um, and so... Want to want to finish this, and then we'll transition into chapter nine. But much of chapter nine, it's kind of like we had mentioned before. It's not like there's one subject and then the next chapter moves on to another, because you're going to see in chapter nine a lot of going back to that whole idea of the covenant, how that fits into uh, chapter nine's presentation of the 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 new sanctuary, the heavenly tabernacle, and, and so on. It, it all intermingles together, okay? And so it's important that we uh, uh, see it that way, all right? So let's have a word of prayer first, and then I'm just going to read several verses to get us going. When we get to chapter 9, I'll have you all read chapter 9, okay? But that'll be a few minutes down the road, hopefully not too many. All right, so let's pray. This morning first and father we thank you for uh, your word thank you for the lord jesus and we just pray you'd help us now as we uh continue our our look into the book of hebrews and just the wonderful presentation about our wonderful savior the lord jesus christ and we just pray that you'd help us uh, again number one just to have a better uh, love and appreciation for him but also a better understanding of how all of this fits into, again, the big picture and the big picture of how you are working in this world to bring about your glory and the good of man, and we, uh, which, of course, involves the salvation of man. And, Father, we just pray, again, you'd help us in, uh, in just grasping all of this. We ask these things in Jesus' name. For his sake, we pray. Amen. In chapter 8, verse 7, let me just read the final verses of chapter 8 here. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And of course, as we mentioned, he's, he's quoting from Jeremiah 31 here for the most part. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. Why are they not going to do that? For all shall know me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first, the first covenant, old. Now that which decayeth and waxes and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. All right, so you see clearly here the idea of a new covenant, and it's involved with the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, all right, and how it has replaced what is referred to here as the Old Covenant. Now, you can search the Old Testament, and you're not going to find the term the Old Covenant, all right? You will see the term the New Covenant in the Old Testament, in fact, in that Jeremiah passage, that refers to a covenant that God was going to make with the house of Israel, and there... And only in that passage does he specifically refer to it as a new covenant. That covenant and details of it are referred to in a number, numerous passages in the Old Testament. But again, that's the only place that it mentions it by name. Now, as we consider this, all right, covenants, as we mentioned, covenants form the basis really for God's working uh, in this world. In other words, God has said he would do certain things, and in some instances, you know, some covenants, he's, he said, okay, you do this, and I'll do this, and, and so on. But covenants, in just a very general sense, do form the basis for God's working in this world. We mentioned this last week. I'm just going to mention this again and, and move on, but covenant theology, some of you were familiar with that, some of you might not be, but it's kind of a term and I'm just going to give you a very basic here, but it basically sees God's working in this world as uniform. In other words, that God's always worked the same way with man pretty much since Adam on, uh, you know, and, and all people that have a relationship with God are basically all one group, all the same group of people that can be referred to as God's church, all right? In fact, in other words, they would see that People in the Old Testament would be part of God's church and so on, all right? That's covenant theology, which, is, which is, covers a very, very large group of professed Christianity, all right, as far as kind of forming a basis of how they view the Bible and God working in the Bible, all right? Looking at it as a, as a broad sweep of, of history and how God has worked, all right? There's another term that is in comparison to that term, dispensational theology, which basically sees God's working in this world in an unfolding, in, in a progressive manner, and sees a clear distinction between Israel and the New Testament church. Now, uh, whether or not you realize it, most of you here, I would assume, follow that line of thinking, all right? You, again, doesn't mean you think of it in all these terms, but uh, in other words, God has, you know, he's worked in a progressive way throughout history. And uh, the New Testament church, right, which in this age in which we live and which God is working is very distinct from the nation of Israel and God's working with Israel. They're two distinct groups, you could say. All right, 
for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe it's verse 32, without looking at it, makes the statement, it's t- in Paul writing to the Corinthian church, he's talking about make no offense don't, to, uh, to, to the Jews, to the Gentiles, nor to the church. In other words, he's making, he's clearly making a distinguishing there between the New Testament church and the Jews or Israel, all right? And then, of course, Gentiles being unsaved people in the world. Um, but dispensational theology looks at the Bible in that way. And it makes, in reality, it makes the most sense of what you see the Bible presenting. And, and some of the other, a couple other real important keys of that is the distinction of Israel and the church, but covenant theology tends to interpret Scripture. Now, notice I underline the word tends, okay, because but it tends to interpret Scripture allegorically. In other words, not so much literally, but spiritualizes things and, and so on, all right? And is amillennial in their view of prophecy, all right? Now, what that means is, Awe is a negative, all right? It, in other words, they, they believe that, you know, the millennium is something that's ongoing now, all right? It's just a spiritual thing, all right? It, there's not going to be a literal thousand year, which is millennium, kingdom of Christ here on this earth, all right? It's just a spiritual idea. Um, but again, if you take the Bible literally, all right, there's problems with this, okay? So dispensational theology, on the other hand, tends to interpret, scriptural, to interpret Scripture literally, and in the prophetic idea, prophetic view is premillennial, all right? I think I had mentioned last week that all dispensationalists are premillennial, all right? I mean, because that's a, that's a, a view that there is coming in the future a kingdom of Christ on this earth where, where the Lord Jesus Christ will literally rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years, okay? And uh, uh, dispensational theology takes that as a literal idea and understanding that, is, that that is in the future, that's yet to come. And again, if you look at the, if you take the book of Revelation in its most common sense approach, you would have to come away with this view. All right. Anyway, all that said, all right, the new covenant, and the reason I'm talking about this is because Hebrews brings this idea in that much of the New Testament doesn't talk about, all right, salvation in the sense of a covenant and how that fits into God's program and working and so on. But the new covenant is both presently, all right, being, now there's a couple big words here, but don't, soteriology is, it has to do with salvation, eschatology, has to do with future things, okay? But the new covenant is both present, presently being fulfilled soteriologically with individuals, right? Individual human beings. As they are saved, all right, they become part of and they, uh, we enjoy the benefits of this new covenant, all right? But it will very literally be fulfilled eschatologically or in the future with the nation of Israel, right? It is a covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. That's clear from the Old Testament, right? In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you'll never find several things. You'll never find any mention of the New Testament church, okay? 
as, as the Apostle Paul uh, writes, the New Testament church and the whole concept of it as an institution and even this period of time in which God is working through his churches, all right, this New Testament church age, all right, th that was a mystery to the Old Testament. It wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, all right? So it, what I'm, this whole concept makes sense if you think about it this way, okay? Because there are some people that would say, well, if it's only to Israel, the promises that you see in the, Old, in the Old Testament about the New Covenant are directed toward the nation of Israel. That is true. And God will fulfill those very literally and exactly as he said. Now, I got a couple other statements on here that I want to get to, all right? That future ultimate fulfillment will involve both salvation and prophecy, all right? In both the salvation and prophetical aspect of that covenant. All right, now I'm trying to be uh, plain here and simple, but the Old Testament prophecies only look toward God's dealings with Israel in this covenant, not dealing with New Testament saints, okay? And those are basically references in the Old Testament that, that deal with this new covenant. Jeremiah 31 is where it actually, you see the name, a new covenant I will make, all right? But there's a number of other passages that deal with it and, and talk about what's involved in it and so on, all right? But keep in mind that the whole concept of the New Testament church, I already mentioned this, both as an institution and in this age of the churches, is a mystery in the Old Testament that's not revealed until the New Testament. In fact, uh, that word mystery occurs in the New Testament some 22 times, and much of it is is communicating this aspect, that, that the, the, new, the church, you know, all of this, it was a mystery to the Old Testament, all right? Now, I, I include this paragraph, this quote here. This is from this book that I mentioned last week. I thought this was good. He summarizes this well here, I think, all right? So, the new covenant was ratified at the cross, Jesus' death being the blood that sealed the bond of the covenant and brought the provisions of the covenant into effect. Such a conclusion need not require that all aspects of the covenant be presently in force for Israel, the Gentiles, or the church. It would suggest that God's administrative covenant for the old era, the old or Mosaic covenant, has been superseded by a new arrangement. The data would also appear to require that, the nation, that national promises of the covenant will not be fulfilled for Israel until a future reign of Messiah. If God were not to do what he promised to do, he would violate his character and his oath-bound covenant. If God does not fulfill the promises of the new covenant with Israel exactly as he promised and as the prophet understood his promise, then he has failed. But God can enlarge the promise and do more than he promised. If God has seen fit to apply some aspects of the covenant to the church, it does not change the covenant promises to Israel. They will still be fulfilled. It simply says that he is doing more than he told the Old Testament prophets that he would do. Now, that last part, I think that's important because, again, the point being is you don't see anything about the church in the, in the Old Testament. So some would argue, well, how can the new, the, the new covenant apply at all in the New Testament church age? All right. Hebrews is applying it that way. That's my point. But how can that be? Well, all those statements in the Old Testament are directed to Israel. And God will do exactly as he has said. The point of those last couple sentences is God can do more than what he promised and not be violating or contradicting his word. All right? 
He has to at least do what he promised to fulfill that promise, right? And he will do all that with the nation of Israel. But God has brought other things, the salvation of people now and so on, into that promise and covenant that he didn't mention specifically in the Old Testament. So he's doing, in that sense, he's doing more than he promised to Israel in the Old Testament, but he's not contradicting it, okay? He, everything about that still will be fulfilled. Now, the idea of that, you know, with, with some of the covenants in the Bible, there's an emphasis on their ratification with an oath as well as with blood and sacrifice, all right? That's not true necessarily for every, at least the, the information we have in the Bible, for every covenant, but you do see that with some. For instance, the Abrahamic covenant. We've, we've mentioned that. That's an important covenant when it comes to the nation of Israel and their future, all right? Uh, but the Abrahamic covenant was first alluded to in the book of Genesis in chapter 12, all right? Where, where God had told Abraham to leave his, his home, right? Go to a place where he, had, uh, he, he would show him. He hadn't showed him yet at that time. And uh, he, you know, he mentions the various things about his seed and so on there, all right? Then in chapter 13, that's the situation where Abraham and Lot have to split ways, part ways, all right? God renews that promise to Abraham that he would make of him a great nation. He would have a special seed and so on. But it's not till chapter 15, which is after the appearance of Melchizedek that Hebrews refers to and so on, right? Not till after that that you see God, what you could say, ratifying that covenant where he, if you remember, he puts Abraham to sleep. Well, he tells Abraham to gather certain animals, all right? And then a deep sleep falls on Abraham. They divide them and they set them in, in order. And there's a, a path between them. And that was normal in that day for how covenants were made, all right? That was a common practice. And, but, but in that situation, all right, Abraham was put to sleep by God. It says he fell into a deep sleep. He saw certain things, but he fell into a deep sleep. And only God walked through the midst of the animals that were divided. Because God, it's an unconditional covenant. God's the only one who has an obligation in that covenant. Abraham didn't have to do anything. It was a promise that God made to Abraham. Okay? But what I'm getting at is, in that instance, you see blood. Obviously, the betting houses aren't here yet today, but, but the betting houses would certainly attest that when there's a dividing of animals, there's blood involved, all right? But there's, there's blood involved in that and sacrifice, all right, with those animals, and all of that was part of that, that ratifying, God ratifying that treaty, that promise that he made to Abraham. All right? In other words, that made it sure that God would do it. All right? Now, the Mosaic Covenant, the old covenant that's referred to in Hebrews, uh, basically in Exodus chapters 19 through 24 is where you see that covenant coming into existence. All right, God is, is the, the Israelites are at the base, camped at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses goes up on the Sinai several times. Pastor preached about that in Exodus recently and so on. But anyway, if you would, somebody, would somebody go to Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8, and read those? All right, Brother John. And just listen as he reads. Notice the aspects that are involved here, all right? 
And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice, and said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning, and built an altar under the hill, in twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he set young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, All that the Lord hath said we will do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. All right, there's a lot in those verses. and Maybe it would have been better if we altered there. Look at it just so you can see. But notice some of the aspects of that. All right? There's a covenant. It's clearly said that God and the people were coming, were entering into a covenant together. God had spoken certain things. And then the people said what? It's repeated, I think, twice at least in that passage. The people said, we're going to do what God said. All right? So you see, they're saying, okay, we agree to this. We're going to do it. Now, remember in Hebrews chapter 8, the bottom line is, it, it demonstrates that that covenant was faulty because the people, you could say, defaulted on their end of the covenant. They didn't keep it. God didn't default on His, but they didn't keep it, okay? But the other thing is, in that context where it's saying that they, you know, they set up these pillars for the 12 tribes, again, it, everything was there picturing something, representing the 12 tribes that were entering into the covenant with God. And notice it said that Moses... Uh, well, he had young men, it says. It's an interesting thing there that he has young men sent, and they come and bring the sacrifices and offer them. But Moses then, all right, so they had, they had uh, it, I, I think it mentioned uh, burnt sacrifices and peace, burnt offerings and peace offerings, I think is the two things specified. You'd have to go to the book of Leviticus chapters 1 through 5. I, I think uh, the burnt offerings in chapter 1. I think chapter 3 is the peace offering. I could be off on that, but uh, you see the, the, the specifics of those offerings, right? The animals and so on. Interestingly enough, the three animals that are involved in those sacrifices would be bulls or bullocks, all right, or could be called calves, and then goats and lambs. Those are the three animals that are referred to in Hebrews chapter 9 concerning the covenant here and Christ, uh, his, his priestly work that's based on that covenant and so on. Those are three animals specified in Hebrews chapter 9, all right, that was a type of his, his uh, acting and so on there. But, uh, and then, then Moses took a basin of blood, right, it says from those animals that were offered, and he sprinkled it on the people, and I can't remember what all else it says exactly about that. But the idea, again, you see the idea there of a covenant being ratified agreed to, and both parties saying, we'll do our part. Now, the Israelites failed in doing their part. They did not keep that covenant, because they, and they couldn't keep the law, all right? Nobody can keep the law, and, and God was using that for several purposes. One, it was a teaching tool to demonstrate that they could never, they could never earn righteousness before God. They could never earn favor with God, all right? Um, but 
the new covenant in Hebrews 10, 8 through 10, all right, and much of chapter 9 alludes back to this covenant with Christ's mediation of it in the heavenly sanctuary, but the blood of bulls, goats, calves, lambs, those are what's specified throughout Hebrews chapter 9, uh, talking about that old covenant, how those, the blood of those animals could not suffice, but the blood of Christ has sufficed, okay? And, and we'll see that as we get into chapter 9. I'm trying to lay the, the groundwork here. Interestingly enough also, remember the last Passover, all right? The, la- uh, the Passover supper that Christ ate with the apostles, recorded in the Gospels. Uh, the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a similar statement. Matthew has a little bit more specifics about it. In fact, would somebody read Matthew 26, verse 28? All right, I thought you'd turn there, Andy, so I looked at you. <laughs> for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Okay, and that's the Lord Jesus speaking there, right, to the, to the guys at the table, all right? And he says, this is the blood of my blood of the New Testament. Remember the word testament, covenant, same word, okay? Of the New Testament covenant all right so jesus explicitly tells them those apostles there i'm going to be shedding my blood this is the blood that's he doesn't say it this way but this is the implication and hebrews builds on this that my blood is what ratifies the new covenant that god is making with israel yes but with any individual human being also who would enter into that covenant by faith with God, all right? But God's the one, he's the giving party in it, just like he was with Abraham, all right? He's the one, it's his word that's at stake in it, not man's word, all right? So again, trying to, trying to tie this together to show, to show how it all fits together. So that brings us into chapter nine here of Hebrews, all right? And so we got a little bit of time left here, all right? So let's, let's do this. If you would, we can start here with Pastor Brinker, and you all just start and read through chapter 9. But keep those things we were just talking about in mind as you read it, because you're going to see reference back to the covenant, to the blood, and all this stuff, okay? So if you would. Stop at verse 10. Um, let's, let's read the whole chapter, because, again, it all fits with that. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the shewbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, tables of the covenant and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly now when these things were thus ordained the priests went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God but into the second went the high priest alone once every year not without blood which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people the Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest, while at the first tabernacle was yet standing. 
which was a figure for the time when present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not be that could not make him and did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of the Reformation. But Christ being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh. How much more... For the blood of Christ, who the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after a man of death, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon is the first testament dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. Saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. And it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the truth but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. But then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, and now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and as to them that look, that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. All right. I wanted, wanted you to read the whole chapter just because the continuity. You see a lot of similarities there, all right, which builds on that idea that chapter 8 brought about with the covenant. And there's other places back in Exodus we could have read as well uh, because it wasn't that, that there at, uh, in Exodus 24 wasn't the only place that Moses sprinkled blood on things and on the people. I mean, when the tabernacle was erected, that had to be consecrated and all the instruments of it and all of that. And they went through very similar things there. And that's where uh, some of what the chapter is bringing in uh, talked about comes into effect there. But the point being, all right, this sanctuary of Christ's priesthood, his, his sanctuary, the tabernacle that he ministered in and ministers in is the true tabernacle, all right? Moses' tabernacle, 
It's called the old tabernacle here, all right? And, and I believe that the principles that were put in place there, they're the same things that carried over into Solomon's temple and so on. It was still an earthly tabernacle that had the same ritualistic approach and everything, okay? Um, and it's all of that can be seen as in comparison to Christ's ministry in heaven, all right? And, and that's what chapter 9 is about. And uh, again, it ties in all of these aspects of Christ's priesthood. The fact that he's a priest that's different than the priests after Aaron's order. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is God who became man. And he's, he's the mediator between God and man. All right? And he, he is the priest who is... Uh, operating after this new covenant that God promised that, is, again, you could, you could think of it this way, because it's God's word that's involved here. Now, God's word was involved in the old covenant because he told the people, if you do this, I'll do this. But that was the key. It was conditioned upon the people's obedience. And they didn't obey, so the covenant became of no effect because they failed to obey. But in the New Covenant, God doesn't say, if you do this, I'll do this. He simply says, I am going to. All right? Now, we could say that there is a condition of faith, all right, repentance and faith toward God to enter into that covenant. But uh, the covenant, God will do exactly what he has said. All right? And that's what this New Covenant is based on, his work, not man's work. All right? The old tabernacle in, is, is talked about in chapter 9 here in the first 10 verses, all right, and just kind of outlining this, you can see very simply the first five verses just give a basic description of the tabernacle. It doesn't talk about the courtyard and, and the things outside the tent. It talks about the tent itself. In the, in, in the specific sense in verses 1 through 5, the tabernacle is the, the tent in which the several pieces of furniture were, and then the holy, the holy place, you know, inside that, okay, holy of holies. All right, so the place is described there, and then in verses 6 through 8, you see its performance. In other words, it, it, it was denied. In other words, it wasn't able to really do, all right, it was a picture only, and that's talked about in the next several verses. Its permanence was denied as well. Uh, it's performance defined, excuse me, this is what it was for and so on. Its permanence was denied in, the, in verses 8 through 10. Um, and the first tabernacle was meant to be temporary. The first tabernacle was meant to be a teacher, all right? In fact, in verse 9, the word figure is used. It's literally the word parable, which is a, a teaching tool, all right? Um, and then... The time of Reformation is talked about in verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Literally, the idea is the time of the new, the new time. And, and it's speaking of the new covenant, all right? Uh, I believe there. So when the new covenant became into effect, the old was put away. There's no need for the old because it's been fulfilled in Christ. Uh, and so on. So in these verses, again, he, he's talking about this, this first covenant had ordinances of divine service 
commandments, orders, if you want to say, in which everything was to be carried out, and it was a worldly sanctuary. It was a sanctuary that was set up here on this earth that the priests literally went into every day, and in one specific part of it, as it says later on down here, that only one man, think about that, only one man in all the world living at the time was, was able to go behind that one curtain. Only one man in all the world. Everybody, there was not access for everybody, all right? In fact, it wasn't access for everybody even into the tabernacle, the first part. Uh, but only one man in all the world could go into that, that, and that was only on one day of the year. And he had to follow certain instructions or he was in trouble, and so were the people, all right? Um, but uh, all of this was, was, again, done exactly uh, by instructions and so on, verse 2, for there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. That first tabernacle was the sanctuary. After the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the, and the, the tables of the covenant. All right, I'm going to show, I got to change, so I got to, I got to pause all right, to do that in a minute. I, got to, I was going to show you some other slides um, to show some pictures of at least somebody's, some artist's rendering of those uh, pieces of furniture and instruments and so on. But um, you see the description, the worded description here. Of course, it was back in the Old Testament, but here in Hebrews 9, all right, it says that in the first tabernacle or in the, the holy place, all right, where, where the various priests went daily, all right, there was a candlestick and table, and the table was the table of showbread, which is, and that was called the sanctuary. Now, there was a third piece of furniture in there, which was the altar of incense, all right? And if it's, it's hard, let me, let me uh, just go ahead and try to change this right now. See if I can do this. This is, again, and it's not coming up. Oh, I got to put it on presentation, don't I? Sorry about that. All right, this, now, again, one thing I don't like about this, these pictures, it's really backwards because the, according to the book of Exodus, both times at least that you read it in Exodus, the gate or the, the way into the whole courtyard and everything faced east. Not, I mean, this is not necessarily directional oriented, it doesn't say, but anyway, so you could say, well, this is looking at it from the north, northeast, but uh, the courtyard always, the, the gate faced east, all right, and the tabernacle was always set up in that same manner, and as the Israelites were in the wilderness, they had to encamp in a certain orientation around that tabernacle, all right, different tribes in different places and so on. Uh, and obviously there were reasons for that. And I think I had mentioned the one time that I, I know somebody had done the math and they say, now I can't verify it because I didn't do the math, but 
And even if I did the math, I'm not sure I could verify it. But anyway, they say that if you would have looked at that from like the, you know, some kind of vantage point up on high and looked down, it would have been, their camp would have been looked like in the shape of a cross because the, on the tribes on the east had the most population, all right, Judah and so on on the east there. Um, now, whether or not that's true, I can't verify. That's an interesting thing to think about, though, all right? But the old tabernacle here with the courtyard, of course, brazen altar and the laver were in the courtyard, and they were made of brass, not gold, which brass was significant of God's judgment, all right? And then inside the tabernacle proper, everything in there was gold, all right? Uh, some of the things were made of wood, but they were all covered with gold. The candlestick or the lampstand was made of solid gold. It was beaten out of a talent of gold, all right, which uh, I don't know if it's exactly the same in Moses' time with a talent, but like, for instance, in the book of Revelation with talents and so on, where it talks about hailstones were so many talents, a talent in that context one talent is equal to about 125 pounds. So I have no idea what 125 pounds of gold is worth today, but that's kind of costly, I would think, all right? Since ounces are hundreds of dollars, right? So anyway, 125 pounds of gold probably, something of that sort, but anyway, a lot of gold, but everything in there is gold. So when the priests went through the curtain here, on his left was the lampstand, we talked at some point last year about the, the golden lampstand, its significance with the Holy Spirit and so on. Table of showbread, but everything in here pictures Christ too, represents something about Christ and his ministry as well. All right, table of showbread, which was the bread was, uh, of course, eaten by the priests and the bread was changed out, of course, uh, had to be fresh and so on. Lamps uh, on the golden lampstand were continually taken care of, maintained, burning, and so on. Uh, had to be trimmed and so on, of course, but continually maintained. Then right before the veil that separated the, the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies, right before that was a, another piece of furniture, the ark, or not the ark, but the uh, altar of incense. In other words, it was where the special mixture of incense that God told Moses and them to, you know, they made special mixture of stuff, and it was not to be repeated for anything else. It was only for that purpose, right? And remember when, uh, uh, but anyway, the priest would put that into a censer, which was just a thing to hold fire, and it would burn that incense, okay? And the priest had to take that with him inside on the Day of Atonement, that one day out of the year when the high priest and him alone would go behind that veil, he had to have that incense in front of him burning, created a cloud, all right? Um, but interestingly enough, you remember in, I think it's Leviticus 10, where uh, Aaron's first two sons, Nadab and Abihu, remember what happened to them? They died before the Lord, it says. Why? Because they offered strange fire. They had done something different with the incense. All right? And that's how serious it was. All right? God said it has to be this, this only. It's for no other purpose, just for 
this. I mean, and the instruction, you think about this, I mean, the instructions that God gives, he's serious about them. And in that instance, he was deadly serious, all right? Uh, I mean, there, there are instances where, uh, now we don't have any other example in the, in the Old Testament that another priest did something wrong with the incense, okay? So maybe they all learned their lesson and were very careful, but there is at times where God does make examples of certain things as well. But anyway, so what Hebrew, the first several verses of Hebrews 9 are describing this holy place, and then behind the veil was, it says, the golden censer, right? The censer was something that the priest carried. It wasn't a piece of furniture in there. It was something that he carried, and I guess that's supposed to be it right there. I can't hardly see it good. I don't know if anybody else can. But the high priest and his, his garb, his adornment there, he had to carry that censer, which made a cloud. The only other time in my life, or the only time in my life, I've actually seen people, you, you know, with, with uh, censers and incense was in, in a Catholic funeral and so on like that. And, uh, and the one that my I was at one by myself before, but one that my wife was at with me, uh, we were, it was a big, big place. It was in Allentown, actually, our, our attorney. I, I shouldn't say names, I guess. But anyway, uh, Mr. Z. But anyway... Uh, it was his wife's funeral, but uh, we were sitting way up in the balcony, huge cathedral, you know, big, and, uh, and the, the Catholic priest is walking down the aisle with a, some kind of censer and incense going, and boy, it was, it was uh, putting out an, an, uh, an aroma, we'll just say that. Um, but again, the point of the priest doing that, it created a cloud, and, and the smell was for the pleasure of God in this instance, okay, as he took it behind the veil. And he went in there with the censer, of course, but he also had to have blood. He had to have a basin of blood that was from the animal that was slain on that Day of Atonement, which was actually a goat, I believe, there, and he had to sprinkle that blood on the altar in a specific way seven times, all right? And um, all of that had to be followed to the T for that to be any kind of effective in its, in its sense in that day. But that's what Hebrews is describing. This tabernacle here, all right? It was, it was a literal thing that was set up and Moses had to, when they, when they constructed it, it was done after a pattern, it says, that Moses was shown. In other words, God gave him exact specifications, directions on how to do it, all right? Kind of like following a blueprint in building something today. It had to be done exactly, all right? If you, if you build something today that's getting inspected and all that, it has to be done according to the blueprint, or it should fail, I guess, technically. Uh, but that's what what these uh, verses here are referring to, all right? In these first five. And over it, in, in verse five, the cherubim were these golden creatures, all right? In fact, it's interesting that the, uh, the writer says at the end of verse five, speaking of these cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Bottom line is we don't know exactly what they look like. Even the writer of Hebrews didn't know exactly what they looked like, all right? I guess the only ones who could attest to what they exactly looked like were the high priests that went in behind that veil once a year. If they even, 
we're able to see them. I don't know. But bottom line is, we don't know. And, you know, and there's all kinds of movies and things about the Ark of the Covenant and all this kind of thing and, and that. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so you have this, uh, back to our outline there, the old tabernacle. You see it uh, described there in those first five verses. And then verse uh, 6 through 8, as we mentioned, it talks about, okay, what it did, all right? Uh, those things that were done there, the priests went always into the first, taber uh, first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God, all the specific things that were to be done and, and all of that stuff on a regular basis. And as we've mentioned before, part of what Hebrews is emphasizing is that Christ did his priestly work one time, and that's all that was necessary. His was a once for all time, a once and done deal, if I can word it that way. It was sufficient for all time. Their job in the Old Testament was never done because it was never satisfactory. It never could satisfy God, and so it was always having to be repeated, always, and yearly on the Day of Atonement. All right, the other things that are described there. And then he says in verse 9, again, let me just recap here, and we're, we're going to close. He says, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices. It was a teaching tool. The, everything in that tabernacle had a purpose, and it was meant to illustrate something, to teach something. And Christ, in what he did, he fulfilled everything that that tabernacle taught about and pictured. He fulfilled it all. And we'll, we'll get more into that then in verses 11 through 22 in Hebrews 9, uh, build up on that, on that thought there, how that Christ fulfilled that. And it makes the comparisons back and forth and demonstrates that. So we're going we're gonna to stop right there. But the Lord Jesus, again, if, if you just think about the comparison, all the stuff that they had to do continually, there was never an end to it. But he did his work one time, and then as Hebrews says, he sat down because it's finished. There's no, and, and nobody can add to it. You know, that's the thing. A lot of people, uh, a lot of religious ideas, you know, will say Christ died for our sins. He did this, but we have to do this. And, you know, you add this or you do this. There's, there's no adding to what Christ has done. He and he alone satisfied God. You'll never, I'll never satisfy God in and of my own efforts and my own service. It's, it's futile. Only Christ and what he has done can satisfy God. And it's our responsibility is to put faith in him and what he's done as being sufficient before God. Anyway, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, just your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for uh, what all he has done for us and, and the very fact that he is our only hope. He is our salvation. And Father, I pray that you would help us, uh, obviously, to rest on that, to be, uh, to be sure of that, and to build our lives on that fact. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray. Amen.